welcome back to the EG Way podcast, coming to you live and direct from EG's boardroom here in Ipswich. Joining us this week for part two of our discussions about education and the way that coding is taught in schools is Matthew Applegate from the Creative Computing Club, an organisation that is a pipeline that takes children from young ages and mentors them through, and in Matthew's case, uh, right the way through to jobs in the games industry. In fact, he's made such an impact, uh, he has won a BAFTA for his work in bringing young people right the way through into the business place. So, welcome, Matthew. Hello. Thank you. Also joining us, we have Julia Hunter, who's a software engineer here at EG and runs the Coda Dojo initiative, a way of getting primary school children into uh, finding out more about technology and coding and STEM as a career. Hello. Also joining us, we have George Markham, who is a recent graduate and is now a software engineer here at EG. And George is here to talk about his experience through university and into the workplace here at EG. Hello. And also joining us is Inky Simmons. Inky is a quality engineer who has a real interest in UX, that's user experience design, and understands a lot about the way that people's personal experience of software and the way in which they use software is fundamental to designing smarter solutions. So welcome, Inky. Hello. I'm Andrew Walker. I am a freelance writer and an old friend of EG's. Uh, I'm also finding it now slightly ironic that I'm hosting a podcast about greater diversity in the software business and how we need fewer fat middle-aged white men because, let's face it, I'm talking myself out of a job. So we'll cover it. <laughs> Here is a question. We're here we're discussing the way that coding is taught in schools and the sort of knock-on effect that has on the coding industry and the role of software, really, in society. That's what we, we touched on in our last session. And I'd like to take that a little bit further now. I want to ask, what are the biggest, most no notable outcomes you've seen, the biggest changes you've seen since you've been involved in working with young people in code? When kids come to us, they're normally quite shy, um, they're often bullied at school, they lack a lot of confidence. Um, when we teach them how to code and make the things that they want in the world, it gives them that back. It gives them the confidence, it gives them the strength to say, I want to go out into the world and do this, I want to make these things. So we've had you know, a lad, I uh, won't name him, um, but he'll know who he is. He came to us, he was, he was bullied at school, he had very few friends, he was you know, just into computing, he was you know, one of us, he was a geeky kid. Um, and you know, just through working with him, I was able to show him that he has this tremendous amount of skill already, um, he just needed to find an outlet for it, and we found that, that it was code. Um, and what, about three, four months ago, I had his mother on the phone to me, crying down the phone, saying, I knew he'd go to university, but I didn't think he'd go away to university. You know, when when you met him, he was just a lad who was stuck in his bedroom. Now he's this, you know, very headstrong uh, lad traveling across um, England to go to rock gigs. He's, you know, he's found himself through code. And we just use technology as a means to get young people their confidence back. Um, and it allows them to go into these jobs, but that's just a bonus for us. We're just helping them regain their confidence through tech. It's quite difficult to know um, 
sort of without doing some studies um, and, and looking at the data, how, how the outcomes change for people. I mean, we, we definitely have lots of personal stories, don't we, about successes, and you can see. So a child comes to a Coda Dojo for the first time, perhaps they're playing around with a little robot, they get it to work, and their faces light up because they've just done this thing, and you can see that you've just sort of triggered an interest, there's a little bit of a flame has been lit there. So these things happen, and I always imagine that that's in some way given something to that child, um, but it's also quite hard to, to measure the outcome of it. So um, I think it makes a big difference, and, and I'd love someone to give me some figures. Have you got some figures? I, we've, I mean, we do a social impact report every year on the work we do, and we're able to track students through our network. And not all of them go into the world of technology, but a lot of them go on to be successful in what career they do choose. And oddly enough, they often leave the community club, not go into, world, into technology, and then come back to it, um, which is in really, really interesting. But what Mark and Inky were saying was they had the, those initial scratch sessions, which really kind of inspired you guys to kind of take it up a bit more. And just by having those things in place, just by having those sometimes one-off sessions are vitally important. I mean, we, we all run pop-up sessions in the middle of nowhere. We went to the Framingham Sausage Festival and ran a coding session. We, we set up at a home ed festival inside of a tent, you know, and we barely had electricity and no internet, but we did it because we knew if we could offer young people that first chance into tech, then it would help them. Yeah. So that, that first hit of, of being involved in coding has to be pretty good. Yeah, it has to be really, really good to inspire them. And isn't yeah. that a, a problem with the way that it's taught? Is that we, we've heard, obviously, from George and Inky, there is this uh, first session with Scratch and, and what have you that, that you experienced. Um, one of the challenges, right, is um, the way that coding is taught. Because, you know, I like to think about coding in a sort of gaming sense from the point of view that you... you say, okay, today I want to code uh, I don't know, a music player. So I'm going to plug in a few bits and bobs from the Alexa API, Bosch, you know, I've got a, co I've got a music player, and then th my work here is done, I feel a great sense of satisfaction. Was it hard being in a situation where you're learning the building blocks of code, a bit like you learn a foreign language, but you never get to have a conversation in, in the lesson for that first year or couple of years? I mean, presumably you don't actually get to author software for a while whereas wouldn't it be more fun if they taught it so you came in and today's class is we're going to make a little doodling program and we're going to plug some things together and see what happens yeah i mean it's definitely important to get that sort of that feeling of success when you see something run or compile um and sort of that's that's the reward that you get when you write code right um uh, and presumably you still get it. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a massive sort of gamification thing. Um, getting the um, sort of sense of something working is a massive hit. Like it releases so much dopamine, it's fantastic. Um, and you definitely, if you don't write code um, to sort of actually get something working, you don't get that. Um, so one thing I made sure when I was sort of learning on my own was to actually do projects and fire something off and make sure that it was um, sort of working and stuff. Uh, I was quite lucky. But um, I, it, it's definitely something that you have to keep in mind, I think, when you're sort of teaching kids how to code. Like you said, with the robots, seeing something actually work, and it's, it's kind of like Star Trek, 
or Star Wars, right? It's something that you didn't imagine would ever exist, and that you've just made it exist. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, all of the, the projects that we do, all the things that we teach, have to be relevant to the young people. They have to be able to see examples of it in their everyday life. So we're not going to teach them something that, you know, yes, we do have to cover legacy stuff. I mean, they do their GCSEs with us, but for the most part, if they're, if they're you know, if they're building websites, we were we were doing big data and personal data course um, right when the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke. So we were able to listen to parts of the Judiciary Hearing Committee and bring that into lesson and explain what that means to them and what that means to the work that they're actually looking at right then and there. It, everything we do in our sessions have to have a bearing on what's going on in the outside world. Um, if not, it's it's you're learning Latin. You know, Latin's fun, but it's it's not really relevant right now. Inky, as a quality engineer in an agile development uh, house who do scrums, presumably, do you find when everything works, it's fantastic? Or are you there at the retrospective? Are you the one with the stick that has to beat people all the time? Is that... There no, are... I don't like beating people with the stick. That's, that's a bit too violent for me. Okay, we don't but... do that anymore then. So that's been a change in the yeah, software business? definitely a change. What I, I tend to find, as quality engineer, so it's, it's kind of my job to make sure that everything that was first decided about the feature is doing what it's supposed to do. And uh, if it's the case that where it's not, then normally I will just have a word with the dev and I'll just say there's this bit of acceptance criteria that it hasn't met or I found this issue. It's really just kind of like I want these things to work and I want us to be able to push a good um, product to the client at the end of the day. So I kind of feel that it's my job to sort of make sure that we do have something that we can then go, look, this is the thing we've done. This is a fantastic thing we've built. But, you know, that's not going to happen unless I kind of pick through it and make sure that everything's okay. I kind of like to think that it's more kind of quality assurance. Like I'm just kind of double checking over to make sure that everything is as it should be kind of thing. And did you sort of get into that that side of the business from, from an early age when you were breaking scratch in class and building your own games, like when the teacher wasn't looking? Yeah, I think so. It's it's kind of like when um when things I, I was quite good at always picking out stuff that say I wasn't supposed to pick out at the time. So it was kind of like, Oh, but it doesn't work if I do it like this. I'd often be told, Oh, well you're not supposed to do it like that. But I'm just like, But but what if I do? You know, it's kind of like the questions, but what if I do this? What if I do that? There was always that that was probably one reason why I was getting into trouble. I was kinda of going off on a tangent and be like, But if you do it this way, then it breaks. And yeah, so back then it was kind of like people didn't want to know that. But I find as a quality engineer, that's that's what people want. You know, if something's not working, then people want to know about it, which I feel like my skill to be able to find things like that is really useful. And I feel like I'm doing a good job in that sense when I do find things. And that also sounds a lot to me like the, the role of a UX designer as well, presumably, because, you know, actually the assumption that oh, well, people will use the product like this doesn't add up. I mean, Nokia assumed that people would use the camera in their phone very differently. They didn't think they'd start taking selfies with them, for example. Yeah, because I think one thing that I find that I like about both, both doing the user experience and the testing is there's a crossover point, which is usability testing, which is where you'll actually you get in potential uh, users of the application uh, or the software, whichever it is, and you kind of observe them actually going through it and get them to tell you what it is that they think that they're doing, kind of to think out loud and you kind of get a real like real life then look at how people might potentially be using it and that's really useful i think for like picking out where things might need to be changed so if the the development team and the the QA may have thought um 
having something on the page was self-explanatory. Uh, somebody from completely not part of the team has just walked in off the street, might look at it and not have a clue what to do with it. And I think kind of having that extra point of view from the actual client or the actual uh, audience is a really, really important thing. And it needs to be done um, at a good time, sort of, so you don't sort of complete the whole thing, give it to people, and then nobody can use it because it would be a waste of money as well. And this this goes back to one of the arguments about diversity in the software business, because there was, again, sorry, I, I know I keep quoting old studies from years ago, but there was a study done on leaving young boys and young girls alone with uh, computer devices and see what would happen. And, you know, the boys would have actually no fear at all about mashing all the buttons and breaking it, whereas the girls would actually approach it in a more methodical sense. And there was this sort of split between, you know, treating things like toys as opposed to trying to learn how they work, etc., etc., and to do with various developmental stages and the development differences uh, in children. Now, of course, that's fine in the sort of 1990s when we assumed that there were only two kinds of children in the world, but now there are a great many more. So we have to try and address diversity on a testing front as well. You've got to know who you're developing for, but also any, like an audience might not be what you expect it to be. So you might create one application thinking, oh yeah, this is going to be for these sort of people to use. And you might find that when it actually goes out, the, the kind of people who you really like hadn't expected or hadn't considered are using it. You then kind of have to step back and kind of think, is there things that need to be changed? And uh, how are you kind of um, adhering to the other people that are using it that you may not have expected? There is, like I say, a lot of research you need to kind of go through with the user experience process. Uh, a lot of time is spent in kind of researching what's already there, building up personas. So you kind of you have to have as much of an idea of the kind of people that you're going to be developing for as you can. But I mean, even with that said, you've still got to really keep open-minded because, you know, literally anyone, if, if an app is on the App Store, then anybody can download it. Anyone with access to that can. So there's kind of a, um, you're sort of opening up the doors to everyone. So you sort of have to make sure you're welcoming everyone in the same way or a different way, depending on what the people are like. What's... The, the changes you've seen in the industry after five years of coding being taught in schools and after the work of uh, five years uh, or more of Creative Computing Club um, and the Coder Dojos, how, how are you seeing a change in the industry? A lot of kids aren't going to university anymore. Um, generally, they are skipping university and going straight into employment. Um, companies are offering um, internships to younger people. I mean, I did work in central government um, with 14 year olds um, who were, were the developers because their brains had the elasticity to take on that work. Um, so it's a matter of the the way people view uh, the value of getting a degree or not, <laughs> not getting a degree. Um, so yeah, that's the one thing I have seen change is a lot of students are saying, actually, I don't think I need to go to university. I'm gonna get a part-time job and work my way up that way. So was that the route that... Now, George, you definitely went to university because... Yes. Yeah, okay. Enki? I didn't, no. I didn't go to university. I um, I was sort of, in a way, pushed by uh, people at college when I'd kind of just done my uh, media BTEC course. I, I was kind of shouted at quite a lot, why aren't you going to university? You know, you can you can do all these things, but you don't want to go to university. You know, kind of, why? What, why? And it was it was more for me that... I didn't think I could cope with university, so kind of from a mental point, but also I just wanted to get out there. I wanted to see what it was really like being in the world of, of tech work 
and I was kind of like, I want to get an apprenticeship. When I heard that there was apprenticeships going for um, software development, that was what I initially went in to do, but then took more of a QA side of things as, as um, work went on. But yeah, I, I just really wanted to get out there. I wanted to have a taste of what it's like to work. I was, I was excited to start work and actually sort of start delivering something for a company or to be able to produce work that I know would then be used in the world. I think it's important to remember that there are a lot of choices about how we gain degrees these days. So it's not an either-or situation. So there's nothing to stop us, for example, getting an apprenticeship and gaining a level four and then working a bit and then perhaps finishing off a degree part-time later on. Um, so there's all kinds of options that people have. And so there's, there's no real need, certainly in the tech industry, I don't think, to, to feel that you have to go and get a degree. Because your degree was in engineering and then it was at a postgrad level that you moved over into software? Yes, and then I actually did a PhD as well. You're right. Having started, I just carried on. Sorry, I didn't have that on my notes. So you're Dr. Julia Hunter. I am. Wow. Hey. Listen, I've got this terrible RSI. Is that no? I'm just, sorry. You know what? That, that. That's exactly why I never tell. <laughs> <laughs> if you could go back and affect Michael Gove's decisions to bring coding into schools, what would you add into the national curriculum? What would you change? I would have diverted the funds to primary schools um, to allow them more freedom to. Uh, teach coding at a much earlier age and kind of sew it into different lessons that other people might not understand that there is code there. You know, there's code um, behind most things, most decisions people make now. So um, I don't think it was particularly a bad thing that, you know, that the curriculum was changed to include it, but I do think it was directed at the wrong people. And uh, secondary schools are already overloaded and underfunded for the, for the time that they need to fit everything into their curriculum. Adding that to the mix was problematic, but I think if they would have diverted it to primary schools, that would have given them more time to prepare in the secondary schools. And also from the point of view of diversity, so we've already talked about how um, really by the time children get to high school, minds are somewhat made up and there is a bit of a divide. Um, so perhaps by investing more time, more resources into coding in primary school, we would help to address that. Yep. Just having more funds available um, in general would have been better. It sort of feels like they didn't really think about it particularly. Um, giving, uh, getting people who've worked in technology to teach um, technology would have made a lot of sense. Having people that have experienced coding teaching coding. I don't know, maybe that's me being crazy, but that makes sense to me. Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, I found with IT, it was always just another teacher who was supposed to be teaching a different area had been pulled in for IT because there just wasn't enough people that had the knowledge to teach it properly. And also we only ever had like a week of it and that was in a year generally when we did coding. And I, I really feel like had the money and the time that have been there to actually work on it a lot more, I think a lot of people would have benefited from it and um, definitely got more interested. And I think probably we would have produced then more, more code-interested um, students, I think. I'm going to put one last question to you to tie everything together, which is what would be your advice to parents about getting their kids into coding for the first time? So I see a lot of parents coming to Coda Dojos for their children, and grandparents for that matter. Um, and my advice would be to have a go with them. 
and learn alongside them. Don't make coding some, one of these things that you tell your children to go off and do by themselves. Actually get involved in it and, and take the time to learn it. Don't be scared because there are so many resources, so many easy projects to follow to get you started. Um, and it, you, just, you just increase the value of it to your children. If you show that you're prepared to spend the time learning alongside them, um, developing an interest together, having fun, making stuff work, getting that dopamine hit, um, and it will just it will just make it will amplify the benefits for the child. Definitely uh, work with your child if they're you know at the early stages of learning. Um, eventually they'll get that bug, they'll get that interest in getting involved in it. Um, interestingly, we have a lot of parents who are reluctant to let their kids get involved in technology. They don't think there's any money in it. They don't think it's a valid career. Don't we live in a farmer's town after all? You know, it's it's odd because we actually have more people working in digital um, in Suffolk than we do have farmers. You've got, you know, average startup here is six employees, average farmers three employees. Um, but we have a lot of reluctance from parents that um, let their kids get involved in technology. They don't think it's a, a valid career. So um, we often have to sit them down and say, well, how much did you spend on tech last Christmas? How much did you spend on video games last Christmas? And it's that money has to go somewhere and um yeah it's quite an eye-opener for them when they think about it like that I, I think um sort of parents coding themselves is, is important you have to do it alongside your kids and and make it fun but also tune it to their interests if your kid is really into sports find some way of getting you know sports involved in in the coding if they're into video games i know try and make a video game or something in scratch um you know it, it's it's making sure that your kid is having fun while they're doing it. Um, and I think that would be a really good way to win. Yeah. yeah, I think having it kind of tailored to your child's interests is quite an important thing because I've often found when I have like spoken to like kids, like my, my, my um, parents, friends, if they've got young kids, if they're playing games, I, I always sort of say to them, like, you enjoy playing that game, how would you like to learn to make a game like that yourself? Like, then you could... Or is there anything, when you're playing a game, do you think, oh, I wish it did this? And then it's kind of the point where I ask the question, well, why don't you learn learn to make the game? And then you could make it the way you want it to be. It's kind of giving them that initiative and kind of like that, that want to do something. And then they think, wait, I can actually do something like that. And I think it's kind of when they learn that, yes, they can do something like that, it, it kind of drives that. And I, and I think getting encouraging kids like that as well as getting the parents involved as well is, is a really good way forward. Okay, that's great. So listen, that's all the time we have uh, in this session of the EG Way. I would like to thank our very special guests today for taking us on a whirlwind tour, not only of the past, but also of the future. And so that is thank you to Matthew Applegate from Creative Computing Club. Thank you. Uh, thank you to Julia Hunter, software engineer from EG. Thank you for having me. Thank you to uh, George Mock uh, for joining us today. George, software engineer here at EG. Thank you. And thank you to Inky Simmons, who is the quality engineer and UX designer. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And we will see you next time on the EG Way. And that is E-G-I-J-Y-I, because everything we do is a great example. And you will find us online at eg.com. And find us on Twitter, and you can see all the photographic evidence that this really did take place. And we're all really very young and, you know, well-preserved <laughs> and that's uh, at EG Limited. Okay, well, that's it. We're up. Let's do a big wave. Bye. That's awesome.